Welcome to the Biscos Pediatric Orthopaedic Digest or podcast. It's a panel discussion of what we regard as the most interesting published papers of relevance to paediatric orthopaedic surgeons. Please do remember the views are our own and not those of the Biscos board, committees or membership. Right. Uh, hello, everybody. This is Anish Ingrajka, uh, and you are listening to the BizCos Pediatric Orthopaedic Digest or podcast. Um, and so together with me, we've got Alpesh Katari. Hi. And producer Pranay. Hey, guys. And we have got an extra special guest. So this is the second year anniversary. And we thought we should have a special guest to celebrate this. Uh, without exaggerating, they are probably the biggest name in UK orthopaedics. Uh, they are probably the biggest name in international paediatric orthopaedics. Uh, and on PubMed, they have 97 publications. So approaching the century, but that might be because I put in the first two initials, not just the first. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and there you go. Everyone will recognize that voice. Everyone knows her. She knows everyone. Uh, we're really <coughs> honored and delighted to have Professor Deborah Eastwood with us. Hello, Professor. Hello, Mr. Sangrajka. So I hope you're going to get onto the first names very soon, because otherwise I might. <laughs> yes, do. yes, we are. So here you go. Good. Thank you very much for joining us, Deborah. Um, my pleasure. My pleasure. Right. So Great. I'm going to hand over to Alpish, who's going to start, as he always does. OK, so first name, Deborah. Lovely to see you. What a privilege, again, uh, to have us uh, on, on the podcast. An early Christmas present for the listeners. I must say. <laughs> um, so in one of uh, Anish's build-up emails, um, he put that, unless you've been a hermit living in a cave for the last few decades, uh, you know, everyone knows you and uh, is aware of your significant contributions to, you know, clinical care, uh, care at RNOH and, and gosh, research, education, mentoring and leadership. Now, if we were to discuss all of that, that would be the whole podcast and, and then some. So I'm just going to focus on a couple of things, um, in part based on, on your recent tweets. By the way, I love your tweets. They're always so on point and, and insightful and, and, and um, yeah, not too inflammatory either, which is, uh, which no, is good. I, I think it's a marker of success that I haven't sort of been trolled or shut up so far. So that's good. Living on borrowed time. <laughs> uh, there have been a few recently about sustainability in orthopaedics. Um, sustainability, obviously, very high on the agenda. Uh, and healthcare is extremely wasteful. So a big question and a, a couple of smaller questions. So big question is how do you think we can address this? And then a smaller question, are there one or two practical things we could do on a kind of day to day basis in a hospital to, to get the to start chipping away at this behemoth? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, there are many facets, aren't there, to sustainability. So I think for the purposes of this, I'm not going to talk about uh, the staffing and training, which are two big issues. But if we just stick with the green agenda, which is sort of uh, the green agenda in its broadest context, I think it is unbelievable how wasteful we are. And it just it just simply can't continue. And I suppose I'm not usually one to get on a soapbox, but when you look around in the operating theatre, uh, A, we waste time for a start off, but then we waste a whole load of stuff. You know, my 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 team now like to, they use three pairs of glove for, gloves for a sort of percutaneous TA release because they have two on to scrub and paint. Then they throw one away and put another second pair on. The plastic surgeons are doing this all the time and they just use 
you know, one pair of gloves. So it's not rocket science to start changing those things. Then there's all the thing about single use bits of kit, aren't there? And um, uh, how much we throw away there and, and why everything is sort of the current thing on social media is and why is every single screw um, separately wrapped? Um, some of this is out of our control. It is the MHRA who are enacting what they believe uh, dictates from industry uh, and the government to a lesser extent and from the profession to try and reduce infection risks. You know, initially the prions from CJD, which was a long time ago, now just general infections and also accountability. You've got to know because of the Cumberledge report, we've got to know where absolutely every screw has been implanted. And, you know, they can't get a little marker on each and every screw. So it's on the packaging and that packaging is three layers thick and things. Where do we start? Well, I, I've decided, I think you have to start small in your own unit. And there are a thousand and one little things that you can change. And the sustainability papers section, the recent BOA came up with some nice little ideas that you could go back home and, and start. And then as a profession, we have to be pushing on multiple fronts as well, I think. I would fun. just like to say, because I was, um, I've forgotten his name, the professor from down south who you got to speak at the BOA. Butter. Um, mood Butter. Yeah. That's it. He gave um, a really good talk. Um, it was very dramatic, but I think this type of topic needs drama. Uh, and since that talk, actually, I've started using, because I used to feel a little bit uncomfortable using a reusable hat, but I'm starting to do that, mm. and even reusable gown. So I think that's two little things. I'm now starting to question whether I do need a sterile plastic marker for every time I do an operation. But um, yeah, so there's little bits, I think, that we can all do. And I think some of the kits that we use, we could probably make much smaller, couldn't we? If you're doing a K wiring. Uh, so that's something I'm trying to negotiate at work. But all on the back of everything that you've been doing with this stuff. And and as you said, I think it's good to see a lot of the profession getting behind this as well. I mean, not, you know, at the start of my career, and when I went to Gosh, they were using reusable. I thought, goodness, how old-fashioned is this hospital? <laughs> you know, it's outrageous. Yeah. This is unacceptable practice. So then we changed to single use, and now we're, we've changed back again. Yeah. Uh, so things do go round in full circle, don't they? Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. Some food for thought. Um, so another thing I'd like to talk about is... Um, effectiveness motivation and burnout so you know if you pardon the colloquialism you've been smashing it for decades <laughs> and and i'm interested to know how you stay motivated motivated and effective and avoid burnout uh so it's um i i have uh, possibly a tendency to get a bit flippant about this and i absolutely don't mean to i think burnout is a really um awful waste of someone's skills and motivation. No one goes into medicine or into surgery to be unable to accomplish their job, you know, and to be burnt out and at risk of moral injury because you can't do the right a thing that you know is right. So no one goes in um, to the profession to do that. Do I think it's become slightly a buzzword? Ever so slightly. And that will make me very unpopular. But I just also think we just, I am naively optimistic most of the time. You know, I come into work like all of you do, and we expect to start on time, work hard, finish on time, maybe go out and celebrate a good day's work um, in a coffee shop or similar. 
But these days, it seems to be really difficult. And it's difficult to get the mojo going. And it's difficult to get anything started. And it's easy to say it's burn out. And it may be. It may well be for some people in selected cases. And I accept that a team can feel burnt out. But if the team feels burnt out, maybe the injection of a little bit of a smile and a helping hand and a let's get cracking today. It's not a difficult list. Let's see if we can do things. Maybe that little bit of optimistic motivation might help. But we've got to address the fact that everyone's working too long hours, you know, that the nursing staff in particular in theatres are working way more shifts than they perhaps, uh, well, certainly than they're contracted to do in their basic contract. So there's lots of things that feed into this. But I think if we could make the working day more fun again, that it might help to relieve some aspects of uh, the tiredness we feel at work. I think it's the only thing we can control, isn't it? Mm. I think everything else needs extra resource uh, or some sort of procedural thing. Whereas being kind to each other yeah. is cheap and something yeah. that we can all do. And I think the problem is sometimes everyone's taking out on each other because everyone's feeling a bit low and then that just spirals, doesn't it? Mm. So. Mm. Uh, I did have a, a slogan for that, but then someone got offended by that. So uh, be positive and be kind. Be positive uh, and kind, yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I go with. Being a, And being part of a team, you know, we are all together and it isn't us against them. And uh, that's really not an acceptable philosophy. So we all have to be in it together. And um, it's got to get back to being a little bit more efficient and effective than it is at the moment, you know. Our trust would like us to come in at the weekends to do lists, whereas, in fact, I'd like the lists during the week to start on time, run effectively and efficiently. And then we wouldn't need to come in on a weekend. Um, but I haven't managed that yet, really. Yeah, I think we're all with you there. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, 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 I try to get data out of the hospital and uh, it's just impossible to get any useful data. Well, uh, one of the um, records said that the list started 173 minutes earlier than it should have. I was like, oh, I'm not sure about that. that, that <laughs> I very much doubt that. <laughs> um, right. So uh, finally, then, where big question, where do you see paediatric orthopedics in 20 years? And, and what should we be doing for the betterment of our speciality? Um where do I see it? I think it's going to be the centre of everything because I'm a great pizza fan. You know, you've got to get it right first times. So that means we've got to get the kids sorted in their musculoskeletal difficulties uh, so that the adults have no work to do. I mean, that's stupidly naive, isn't it? But I, uh, and that doesn't mean by operating on everything we see, it means being um, selective in what we do and when we do it. And I think that's an ongoing challenge in paediatric orthopedics. And that's why we all do paediatric orthopedics, because it's not in the textbooks what to do and when on the whole. So I think the future is is bright. I think it's going to be interesting as we understand the true etiology of some of these conditions a little bit more. You know, I'm beginning to feel that old style cerebral palsy doesn't exist anymore because everything's got a bit of a genetic defect. Whether that's truly important or not, who knows? But it may be, it may be that we are going to become splitters again. So rather than lumping everything together in terms of a disability, we're now going to split them off and say, oh, you've got this genetic defect. You're not your classic spastic neuromuscular problem. For you, we need to do something different. 
you know, or maybe that's slightly ridiculous because in the global scheme of the child, the spasticity, for whatever reason, is horrendous. And maybe fiddling around the edges isn't isn't going to be enough to sort that out. But understanding the pathology that we're treating better is where I think paediatric orthopedics needs to go. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what I was going to suggest, so again, because, you know, uh, you've got, I think, would it be fair to say you've been a consultant longer than I've been a doctor? Did you become a consultant before 1999? I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's testament to your expertise. Okay. Um, we've asked uh, Deborah to come up with two papers as opposed to the standard one. So we're going to discuss oh. your first paper, which will be... Uh, what you thought was interesting in the last three months. And then we've actually asked her, which is a really difficult question, a paper that she feels has kind of defined or helped her practice uh, over the last 20 years. So Deborah, did you want to tell us about the, your first, your recent paper, the one in the last three months that you thought was interesting? Yes, so I decided to go with very recent. Yeah. Um, and so it was in this month's uh, Bone and Joint Journal. Uh, it's a paper from Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. So I'm always, uh, the trainees know that I always start a journal club thing saying, do I know the authors? Do I know the institution? Do I like them? Do I trust them and believe them? So I know and like the team from Texas Scottish Rite. And so I'm inherently biased already to, to want to believe their, their paper. Um, and it's on... Um, does brace treatment following closed reduction for DDH improve acetabular uh, coverage? Um, so I'll come straight out with some of my biases when I read it. Um, they didn't quote our paper on closed reduction from Stanmore, so I think that's a bit of a no-no. Um, I'm a bit all or none when it comes to bracing. Uh, and when it comes to surgery, I believe in less is more sometimes. I like to keep out of the joint, but I do believe in a capsulography. So I do like closed reductions. And if I could improve the outcome of a closed reduction, then that would be useful. So the short answer to their question, does bracing post-closed reduction for DDH change the outcome? No, it doesn't. But as ever, the, some of it detail is, is what we need to look at. So they did have... It's a single center study, which is good. We like the unit, so that's good. It's a fair number of hits. Of the ones they actually looked at, it was 243 hips. There are no details of the closed reduction, you know, like what their indications for closed reduction were, um, how did they judge success, whether they put a soft tissue release in, what sort of a cast they used. Yeah. Mean age of treatment was 10 months, which sounds good, but it was from six to 40 months. That's quite a, a range. And their mean treatment time in their cast was 14 weeks, but a huge range from four to 32. So that's a bit, uh, you know, it's probably fine, isn't it? There's probably one or two outliers that, that made, made the, the oddity. It was surgeon choice, and there were 15 surgeons over a long time period. So... Of the 243, 44 had no bracing after they came out of the cast. 111 were braced part-time, which sort of went on for 
six months, and 88 were braced uh, full-time, and that was for about 12 weeks. No rationale for how long you did it for or why you did it for or were you waiting for them. So that's all they can say, really. Yeah. So they looked at the a at the acetabular index at two years and at four years and found no real difference between those who were braced and those who weren't braced. And they found no difference in the rate of secondary surgery for residual dysplasia, which was, in my opinion, really quite high at 33%. They essentially only did pelvic surgery for their residual dysplasia. That was obviously their go-to operation. Uh, and only three of the 80 had an open reduction. So it was really, they did a pelvic osteotomy for residual dysplasia in 33% of this cohort. Then they decided, and I'm not quite sure why, to do a subgroup analysis looking at the no-brace group. So although overall there was no difference in the rate of surgery, the no-brace group had surgery earlier than the brace group. Now, if you believe that maybe early correction is the way to go, then maybe that's helpful. If you believe in giving the closed reduction process time to work, then maybe it's reasonable to, to wait a while. So their indications for surgery were unclear, and we've no idea, of course, whether the brace was worn or not. So in the end, I decided I didn't know quite what to make of this study. I was hoping it would change my practice, but I don't think it will. And when I compare it to our closed reduction paper um, from the Stanmore Group in 2016, um, our initial failure rate of the process was the same, but we only had a 10% rate of offering further surgery for residual dysplasia. And as far as I can tell, we were using the same sort of idea of a, uh, an acetabular index over 25 at, at the two to four year mark. Um, so um, I, in fact, the more I'm talking about it now, the more I'm thinking it's not a very helpful. <laughs> and I'm surprised that the lack of detail meant that it was published actually um, by that particular journal. But I'd be interested in what you think about it, really. Uh, um, I'd love to know that I'd love to know that bracing a bit longer would be helpful. But I really am not keen on bracing kids and upsetting the families, you know, unnecessarily. Yeah, so it's interesting because the same group have published in the JPO last month, looking at the effect of bracing following open reduction. Mm. Um, and again, no significant difference, but it's exactly the same weaknesses. It's the uh, all comers. So it was random about whether someone got a brace or not. There was nothing explaining the rationale, really, nothing about how long the brace is used for. And that's the problem with using secondary surgery as an outcome, isn't it? It's so subjective. They may look at the same x-ray and say, yep, we're going to do something, whereas I might say, no, let's let's hold off. So I thought it's a good piece of work where they're trying to answer a question. But yeah, unfortunately, I personally didn't think they answered the question because there's too many holes in the study. Um, do you brace now, Deborah? Do you actually, so after closed reductions or just open reduction without any osteotomies, would you put them in a brace afterwards? 
No, so my our, my our close reduction protocol at Stanmore, we're not quite as cohesive as we used to be, but on the whole, we brace for quite a while. So we brace for four and a half months. So right. three months in a plaster cast, six months in a 23 hour a day brace. Yeah. So it's all meaning brace all the time for four yeah. and a half months, which is quite a long time, but then nothing. Yeah. And after a open reduction, I feel I've done more of the work myself. So as long as the capsular repairs healed, then uh, I'm still in plaster for nine or 10 weeks um, uh, and then nothing. Yeah. But again, I'm in plaster probably for longer than many people are these days. But I think our results are still quite good. And so I've been reluctant to, to come down if yeah. that's going to risk having more surgery later. So... So I was going to say, unsurprisingly, my protocol is very similar to yours. Uh, and that's my training background. What about you, Alpesh, though? So you're someone who's been through Oxford and Toronto. So what would yep. you do in terms of, do you brace? Do you do closed reductions or do you go straight to open? No, no, we do closed reductions. Um, that was going to be one of my comments, actually, is that the example they gave was of a 17-month-old. And I think, you know, they, they sort of needed to separate the wheat from the chaff, really, because mm. I don't think anyone, anyone would really do a close reduction on a 17-month-old. Maybe they would, but um, we wouldn't. It'd be nice to know for the population that I do a close reduction on, yeah. does bracing help or not? Mm. Um, and we don't know, uh, really. So I think that's uh, that's an issue. We don't routinely brace afterwards. Um, I think if it's if there's something atypical about the, the, the dislocation, uh, if it's... Uh, one of these weird mixed kind of spina biffs, uh, I might because you think it's probably going to fail anyway at some point, yeah. um, but but not in the kind of routine um, DDH. But re actually doing this podcast and reading various papers and maybe more literature and getting better understanding, um, I think we're pretty short in what we do. It's it's a three months in spiker and then off you go and let's see what happens, uh, which may be a bit short. Well, I don't know. So that, again, um, a few years ago, Biscos had a study group that looked at uh, DDH surgery. Uh, and so I was a 12 week and nothing person. And then I saw that actually some people are doing 18 weeks, according to literature in Spiker. And that's where I thought the brace was a good compromise. See, I'd do six, change at six, uh, and then out of Spiker into a brace for 23 hours. And then I do the weaning. Um, and, it, you know, I say to the families, maybe this is treating me more than it's treating the baby. Um, but I think, yes, these two papers. So, as I said, the conclusion was exactly the same for the open reduction, except what they found. And that's what was interesting. In the other one is they had to put anterior open reduction in the title because with the medial open reduction, there was a slight difference, but just not statistically significant. But yeah, um, if you don't look closely enough, then bracing definitely doesn't make any difference. So I think from what we're saying, it probably won't change our practices, though. Because in this group where they said... Um that some needed surgery early. I'm a, I'm a great fan of the Albaniana paper, which sort of says, you know, what, what is your AI acetabular index two years post-reduction? And if it, at two years, it will improve till four years. And at four years, they suggest it, it won't. So of course, if you're going in early, then maybe it would have got better. But they had the same overall rate of surgery between all the patient or all, all the cohorts. So but as you say, Alpash, there's such a mixed cohort and I'm increasingly, and I know the Toronto group always talk about the sliders and the whatever, I can't remember what the other word is now, yeah. jumpers, jumpers and the sliders. Yeah. Um, whereas I've just 
thought it was congenital dislocation versus <laughs> developmental dysplasia. But but there are those categories of hip, which I think make a big difference. And it isn't quite so straightforward as just saying it's an IHDI four or three. It's more about the pathology that goes along with it. So I think that's where we've got to be a little bit more clever uh, in trying to document what we're what we're treating. Yeah. So when, when I was in Toronto, they they, they said limes and lemons, maybe oh, because really? they felt they felt that I couldn't understand the other method. They just <laughs> this guy likes this guy likes eating. Let's do so food based. Uh, one last thing I thought actually the the the, um, the picture they had showing the Astable index. And they talked about they're measuring the AI to the lateral edge of the saucer. And I didn't think their picture showed that actually. <laughs> it, showed, it showed the lateral, it showed the traditional AI method. So um, that's the saying which slipped past one of the reviewers, clearly. But, uh... Well, it is interesting, isn't it? Because the whole case isn't the one that I would classically use to sort of discuss a closed reduction with, really. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. And then they show six months after, uh, you know, like not like 10 years after. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We all know these little tricks and the tricks of the trade when we're trying to publish, really. Yeah. And again, you know, you touched on that range, but this is you have to wonder when you decide that you're going to go for 32 weeks in a spiker. Hmm. Uh, uh, what, what is going on where you're like, yeah, I think we just need a few more weeks. No, no, even a few more weeks. Yeah. Yeah. We're just going to extend that out. And on the flip side, four weeks where it really was just a kind of, yeah, we, you're under an anesthetic. We thought we'd put a spike on, but we don't think it's doing very much. So we'll get you out anyway. Don't worry yeah. about it. Um, but yeah, right. OK, so moving on. So as you said, you're quite an experienced person. What I did want to ask you was how you, we talked about the future of orthopedics and pediatric orthopedics. What about you? How do you think we are where we are now and how things have gone over your career? So compared to when you started what questions or what developments do you think you've seen that have made a change? Um, because talking about DDH, you talking about, you know, the dysplasia versus the congenitals. Do you think we have answered the big questions to any great degree in the time that you've been working as a consultant? So sadly for DDH, no. And I think bringing in the term DDH and getting rid of the term CDH has set us back a little bit. I truly think it has. Right. Um, I know that for various reasons, and I always say tongue in cheek, medical legally, it's great if it's developmental displays, it's not half as bad as congenital dislocation. So we're allowed yeah. not to pick it up early, but that's not, a, you know, that's really not an acceptable argument. And that is a bit tongue in cheek for me. So there's obviously a spectrum of pathology and that that is helpful in, in a lot of pediatric orthopedics and understanding that there is a spectrum of pathology has really been um, a great advancement. But I think in essence, in, in uh, DDH, uh, in perthes, maybe even in slips, I don't think we've made huge advantages, advances. Yeah. Uh, in clubfoot, we have, you know, we've really changed the scenario there. And in uh, an understanding of guiding growth um, with simple things and then manipulating bone formation with limb reconstruction techniques, I think that's been uh, truly uh, revolutionary. And like all new techniques, we've just got to make sure we we um, guide the growth of the technique and not let it get take, you know, not get too carried away with it. We're always going to get carried away. We're always going to overshoot yeah. where it's really useful and then come back to, to well, you're testing the limits of the technique, aren't you? So that that 
that has to happen. You know, and in, in many situations, we'd become very aggressive. Uh, you know, with cerebral palsy, we'd become very aggressive. What do I think has perhaps been the biggest achievement there is? It would be nice if we could do selected dorsal rhizotomies on some of the fours and fives, make caring for these patients a lot easier. You know, that's maybe not going to be beneficial in any sort of, well, it would be if you ask the right quality of life issues, it might be beneficial. But rather than having it to try and make people walk better, maybe you could also use it to just make life easier for the patients and their families. Yeah. Brilliant. Um and then I guess that's where we come on to the and what's the paper that you think has been helpful for you through your career? Um, and yeah, do you want to tell us about that one? Yeah, so this was um, in the Bone and Joint Journal. I think it's called the JBJSB at that time. It's by my mentor, Tony Cattrall and uh, Arish Hashim Najad are the two main authors. Um, it but nothing was... to do with you being on the editorial board of the BJJ, has it, Deborah? No, I'm not on there anymore. Oh, you're not? Okay, that's what I was <laughs> going to say about this. There's a fix. Her first paper was from the BJJ, now this one as well. But no, no, it was a bit about what influenced me, and I there were lots that came to mind, but I suppose this paper has guided how I manage every child with DDH. And when I reread it, I realised I hadn't read it for a long time. And it wasn't quite the paper I thought it was. Um, but to put it in, in context, it is a philosophical paper, I think. And at the time, there was a huge controversy. Um, and we used to joke about it, but the Toronto School of Thought said that these hips had to have a Salter osteotomy. And the Great Ormond Street School of Thought from George Lloyd Roberts was that it was always a femoral osteotomy. And right from when I first met Tony Cattrall, he said, well, it can't be that simple. There is a spectrum. There are a few hips where they really, really do need the derotation that only a, that a femoral osteotomy can give. And there are some that really need the anterior cover that actually only a salter or pelvic osteotomy can do. And he felt that in the middle, it maybe didn't matter which side of the joint you operated on. If you corrected one side of the joint, the other would grow itself, grow itself right. So I think the paper is really supposed to be reporting the use of a selective approach, which I do like in terms of managing uh, a hip after an open reduction. Uh, what is the strength? It, it, I mean, it's, my bias is it comes from the unit I work in and it, it has influenced uh, my career. It is a single surgeon, single centre experience. I don't think it's all comers. You know, I think it's the 95 hips in H2 patients that they found. Uh, Hammer did review half of them in person and the other half were from the, from the notes. Again, it's a mixed cohort. Um, 54% were under two years when they had their open reduction. 30% were under four years. And then that means there's 20% over four. So I think we have to sort of take them out of the equation a little bit. Um, you know, he does a very good, he taught me to do a very good anterior open reduction, clearing all the soft tissues. And then he had a, a process for gently lifting the femoral head into joint. 
And he felt and he taught me that if you lift the femoral head into the joint with the knee flexed, that the hip would go in in about 30 degrees of abduction, 30 degrees of internal rotation, 30 degrees of flexion. And you could hold it in that place gently with the knee flexed to detension the hamstrings. And then his idea is that you took out one by one all of those deformities to see what the hip needed for stability. And so he was biased against the pelvic osteotomy because he took out flexion first and the hip was all was still abducted and internally rotated. But it meant that if the hip did not dislocate at that point, it did not have to have a pelvic osteotomy in his viewpoint. Then you would take out abduction. And if the hip was still in joint, then it did not have to have varus. And then in order to do the last one, the derotation, you really had to extend the knee at the same time. So the hamstrings did come into play. And, and so it predisposes really that rotation is the biggest problem with this test of stability. But at a junior age, it gave me a rationale for dealing with the hip in front of me. And interestingly, at that stage, we also didn't do the osteotomy on day one. We said today's job was to get the hip in joint and you would put it in spiker in the 30-30-30 position, having worked out what you would need to do. Sorry, if you did the pelvic osteotomy, obviously you did that at the same time, but if it was on the femoral side, we came back at two weeks to just do a little operation, break it, turn it round and fix it. I mean, that was unnecessary, you know, but again, as a junior consultant, it was really helpful to only have to deal with one problem, you know, on day one and, and to get that right and then do the corrective osteotomy a bit, a bit later. So he felt that there were sort of four different categories of hip. There was the hip that did not need flexion, abduction or internal rotation. So it was stable in the neutral position. And he felt that was only there in effectively 2% of hips. Yeah. I've accepted relative stability in the younger kid, particularly. So I was horrified when I reread the paper and thought he only did that in 2% because I do that in much more in the younger ones. Then there was a group that was... Um, uh, 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 what should I say, um, a group that he called stable in abduction and internal rotation, and they needed a femoral op osteotomy. And he had two thirds of those, two thirds of the cases needed a femoral osteotomy. And he felt that only 14% really had to have the Salter osteotomy. And uh, the older kids did need both. So he predisposed everything about the technique does predispose you to a femoral osteotomy. And of course, in the older children, you need more. And then the really sad thing about the papers, he talks about the stability when you've already had to cut the femur to get the hip in joint because it's been out too long. So that's a real flaw in the logic of the paper. So if it's a high dislocation and it's been out a long time, you can't reduce it just because you've released all the soft tissues. 
And even with the knee as flex as it can be to get the hamstrings detension, you can't get the hip. So you can't talk about the test of stability for those few hips. So that was, you know, in my heart, it was disappointing to see that was, a, I thought, quite a, a big mistake in the paper. It also discussed, you know, what I know that TC was very keen on. It discussed the double diameter acetabulum. So he feels that there's a case for a Pemberton rather than a Salter. The tight reduction, you know, you've got to be able to just gently lift the hip in. Um, this, the, the, the results were good, is, is all I'm going to say. Uh, defined as only 7% of cases needed surgery for residual dysplasia. So the argument there would be that his judgment at the time of the initial surgery was good 93% of the time. I think that's probably fair to say. Did he overoperate? Uh, maybe a bit. Did he underoperate? No, I don't, don't think so. So I don't think a 7% rate of coming back to do something else was, was uh, too, too bad. Uh, he highlighted the problems of a leg length difference in, in later teenager. Um, he highlighted the things that we know well now about the type 2 AVN giving you the valgus tilt. So those sorts of things which we know well now, but I think were not quite so well accepted uh, at that time. And the interesting little snippet in that paper, which I'd clean forgotten about, was that there was an 8% distal femoral fracture rate coming out of Spiker. Uh, which do I, that's probably, is that a bit high? Maybe it's a bit high, but it's sort of, it, it's not that uncommon. I went through the first part of my career never seeing it and thought TC was lying when he told me about these little fractures. But of course, TC didn't usually lie and, and I, it was proved to be right. And I've had my fair few as, as many of us have had. Um. And the, the results are better in the under twos, less good in the two to fours, and of course, not so good in the over fours. So that's um, um, not surprising. And, you know, there's a lovely line in the discussion. We've avoided a direct comparison between our data and those other series because no two papers are comparable. I happen to believe that, but it's a bit, it's a bit of a get out of jail free card, isn't it? Um, so I, I think... Um, it was interesting to me to go back to that paper. I don't think it's quite as good a paper as I remember it in my mind, but I think the philosophy behind the paper is good and it has continued to influence my management of the DDH hip and to a certain extent has influenced my management of the other developmental displays of the hip called cerebral palsy, because I believe that's a totally different, isn't it? But that's a hip that develops a dysplasia and subluxation a problem uh, as you go on. So it's influenced my thinking for CP hips as well. Yeah, no, I, you know, so um, I think, I think this is a really nice paper actually. So it's something that I've used as well. Um, I just like that it provides a framework for thinking mm. because it doesn't make sense that everything can be treated in the same way, you know, so you read the books and it's, oh, if they're over two, you should consider ephemeral shortening. Uh, and the FRCS answer, I think, these days is wait till 18 months, do a salter osteotomy. If they're over two, do ephemeral osteotomy with a salter. Um, and I like the fact that actually we don't understand the pathology here. You don't know what's going on with the acetabulum. It can't be the same for every patient, can it? So mm. 
it makes you think i thought his description of his thought process was very good and actually his results seem really real and i i'd understand you know i, I wonder if this would have been published in this day and age because you would say oh, it's single surgeon uh, there's so many other flaws but you compare it to you know the work from scottish rights that we've just discussed and i think this could influence your practice whilst the other one wouldn't really yeah yeah alpish what about you because i i don't know had you come across this paper before yeah, I had. I think we we included it in the the review we wrote in Core, um, mm. and uh, because it is one of the biggest series. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as as Deborah says, sort of philosophical paper, and you know, certainly I find that no open reduction is the same in a way. Um, and you know, if you just ignore that and just do the same thing every time, you're not gonna. You know, you, you can't really predict what your outcome is going to be. So you have to treat it accordingly. I guess one thing I think about with the rotational issues of the femur is that we're going to keep them in the spiker for a, a while. At least we can obtain a position of stability, maybe with a bit more internal rotation. And I, I think I'm less likely to do femoral osteotomies, yeah. I think. Um, but, you know, it's an important consideration. I, I presented Charlotte Posner a few years back, uh, our work in Oxford, mm. and... Um, uh, several preeminent surgeons stood up and they're like what about the females like well we just don't do it that much and they're like they looked at me aghast and it's like well, well clearly there's these guys in oxford don't know what they're doing um but you know everyone has their different philosophy and i think it's important to discuss it and visit different centers and see what they do and you're you're right Albert. i do less femoral osteotomies i'll do an open reduction on its own with an abducted internally rotated hip and i will do a quite a tight I know that's heresy as well do a quite tight capsulorophy to sort of allow the hip to grow its femoral antiversion grow it out and also I think these days I think TC was probably trying to talk about the acetabular cartilage index he didn't use that phrase at all but that it was a look at the actual hip in front of you not just the x-ray on the board that was the point and I think we need to um take much more account of the cartilaginous um, uh, epiphysis uh, uh, or analog, whatever we want to call it, to see, because that's got to be part of our thinking process and, and how we can encourage that to develop normally. And one last question before we move on from DDH, because this is what strikes me when we're sitting at meetings, is that there is this massive spectrum in terms of surgery, isn't there? It could be the, it could be nothing just an open reduction, could be the femur, could be the pelvis, could be both. Uh, have either of you guys started using the little uh, stimulan pellet that uh, Alex Arvold and Nick Clark in Southampton were describing? Because that's what worries me, actually, is that if I'm doing these osteotomies, whereas actually people are saying, no, you can just pop this little pellet in and it will all be OK. Either of you got experience with that yet? I'll let Alpash go first. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Uh, not with the stimulan, but... I've, I went down. It's Ostracet, isn't it? It's Ostracet. Yeah, uh, but I went down to Southampton to see them do it, and as one would expect with all these bone graft substitutes, it kind of just turned to dust pretty quickly. Um, yeah. I, I think the bone in the area is okay, even in the younger patients, and if you're just doing it to stimulate. So we had a cut. We had a couple uh, recently where we just they were younger patients, so you, they weren't going to take a full pelvic osteotomy. It just took a little bit of the crest, opened it up a bit. It's a bit too early to say whether they're going to need anything else in the future, but you know they use the whole bottle for one tablet, one pellet, and it just seems again sustainability is very wasteful, um, <laughs> and uh, and the bone is there, and and I think is of, of better structural integrity maybe than uh, that stimulant. So 
I, I think it could be a good thing, but I wouldn't use the Ostis set. I would just use the bone there. Right. You know, and it's interesting, it takes me back to my early days where you did non-displacement osteotomies. You know, you just broke the bone to stimulate healing and get rid of the arthritis. And I certainly think periosteal stripping, you know, around the acetabulum may stimulate its growth and you get the femoral head sitting nicely against the triradiate cartilage. And I think those two things will also stimulate growth. So I, I'm... A, I'm um, Tony Cattrall also used to say, consistency is the sign of mediocrity. And I have <laughs> consistently kept with his techniques. So maybe I need to, in the new year, make a New Year's resolution and start putting some little stimulant pellets in. So I, thank you. I'll do that. I'll start, <laughs> start the new year in a new way. I keep wanting to try it. But yeah, um, there you go. I might try that in the new year and then we can feed back after that. Yeah. Right. So thank you very much. Um, we're going to move on to our bite sizes. So Alpesh, did you want to kick off first? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So start with a few neuromuscular papers. <clears throat> Firstly, Cheng Min et al. from Taiwan, JPO in October edition. Soft tissue releases with simultaneous guided growth decrease risk of spastic hip displacement recurrence. So I mostly put this in because I know our producer Pranay loves hip guided <laughs> growth so much. Um, so anyway, this was a, a retrospective comparative cohort study looking at hip migration in those having soft tissue releases alone versus uh, soft tissue release and guided growth. There was quite a heterogeneous group of patients of so GMFCS 2 to 5, uh, and the mean age of surgery was 6.8, and actually the pre-op mean migration index was 56%. So 46 patients had releases alone, 20 had guided growth failure regarded as inability to get the migration percentage less than 40% and recurrence if the migration percentage increased by 5% or more after the first post-operative year. So they found that the guided growth was associated with a lower risk of recurrence um, despite similar odds of failure, which was one third to a half, so pretty high. Um, but I, I kind of guess that makes sense because you would expect the soft tissue release maybe to give you the acute uh, improvement and then the guided growth to be the slow burn. Um, I think my take home point was that if you're not considering a full hip reconstruction, soft tissue releases with guided growth is probably the best option, but maybe crack on earlier. I think a lot of these hips were past the point of no return really. Uh, and I think that's probably, they didn't discuss it enough. I think they probably should have done it sooner in some of these, I think. Who was the main author on that paper, Alpush? Uh, so first author was uh, Cheng Minet Al. Um, so senior author was uh, Chang Chie Xie. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. Um, okay. Um, anyone? I was just going to say with that, yeah, no, with that paper, it's when you look at the photos, and I don't know if you did, of the case where, because uh, I think they looked at one year, two years, four years, something like that. And actually, when you look at one of the cases they showed, the screw wasn't actually across the physis for a couple of the time points. So it, it seemed to be working, even though the screw wasn't in the right place. Well, it was I also think... in the middle. It was also in the middle of the femoral head as well. Yeah, it's probably so they, up the a, fairway. Yeah. Well, they. Do you know what was interesting? The the technical point that they said was to increase the amount of screw that can go into the epiphysis. They did that on purpose. They crossed the physis at the middle, but aim for the medial epiphysis. So I think that's always been my concern with these: is how frequently. When you look at the other papers, you're literally changing them every twelve to eighteen months. Uh, and then they also talked about rebound, didn't they? There was this for some of these soft tissue releases. They seem to get better, but rebound within 12 months. Um, and that's what the guided growth helped with. So, yeah, I think my take home was do it earlier and do it in children that you don't think would be suitable for a full on hip reconstruction. And do it with the soft tissue release. 
Yes, yeah. I and think... that's certainly Jim McCarthy's take on it as well from the States. And he's another guy who I whose opinion I trust. So he was quite sceptical about it, but has changed his mind. Right. Yeah. Okay, so next up, um, Udenhoven et al. from Amsterdam. So fatigue-related gait adaptations in children with cerebral palsy. Uh, so this was in developmental medicine and child neurology this month. So a simple and very clear paper, I thought, seeing how fatigue affects gait parameters and energy costs of walking and ambulant children with cerebral palsy compared to healthy controls. Uh, so main findings were that fatigue does change gait parameters in all children over time. But in the children with uh, cerebral palsy, more significant changes were noted in sagittal plane knee and ankle kinematics with a tendency walk to walk more in, even in, in crouch, even if they weren't in crouch normally. Uh, so this was at the threshold of the MCID of the gait profile score. Um, despite this, though, no major changes were noted in the, the kinetics um, or the energy cost of walking. But it's it was an interesting, well-designed study highlighting what we know already, really, that the gait lab is too highly a controlled environment. And just getting a child to walk up and down a walkway a few times may not be enough to tease out these more nuanced gait problems, fatigue, et cetera. So we probably need to think outside this box. Um, and this is where different technologies, IMUs, et cetera, will be useful, um, I think. So, um, yeah, but I think proving that the fatigue um, changes a lot of these parameters then uh, you know, makes us ask even more questions. I suppose what I was wondering is because, again, both you, Deborah and Alpesh, run gate labs, don't you? You you have work in gate labs. With this paper, is there any uh, kind of mileage in having something done? I think they were talking about, was it six minutes walking? Um, do they do? I mean, I, I thought they probably do that much walking anyway. So could you do a baseline one and then one when they're supposed to be at their kind of uh, tired level of walking for comparison? Because that'd be really useful for us, I suppose, because what it made me think about is maybe some of what we do, we're underestimating because we're not measuring what's happening. Will it stop them getting so fatigued? Will it help their kinetics if we're doing these operations? Also kinematics, not kinetics. Hmm. Yeah, I Ollie. think um, I think you need to take advantage of when the child's being cooperative and get your data quickly, to be <laughs> honest. Because, uh, you know, if you procrastinate, you're going to miss your opportunity. I think the other issue is that we have a lot of normal data for the standard up and down walking. Right. We'd have to develop a whole new selection of normal data to know whether what we're observing Actually, is pathological. I think this would be great. I think I'd love to see you guys making tired, angry children just walk up <laughs> and your gate lab. But you know, I think we saw we saw Pradai's daughters are ready to volunteer. <laughs> But, you know, I, I've got a thing about the six minute walk test, which is used as a standard measure of success of treatment in my kids with mucopolysaccharidosis. They've accepted that as a, you know, and it, they so they walk for six minutes if they can. And they walk very slowly. I mean, at a speed that couldn't allow them to cross a road safely. And. I can go a whole day without walking for more than three minutes at a time. I mean, if you, if you really look at it. And so I agree fatigue is, is important, but this sort of nominal six-minute walk test is not necessarily fit for the purpose either. But fatigue is a really important thing, isn't it, for the kids with CP? They, are, they do get fatigued. There's no question about it, and we don't measure that very well. No. Okay, so third paper, pharmacology, pharmacology now. Um, so Zolgensma, the novel gene therapy uh, uh, for the treatment of SMA. You may have come across it. I'm sure you have. Any idea how much it costs? Does anyone uh, know? Very lots of money. Lots and lots. 
Yeah, pretty pricey. So list price of £1.79 million, although me mate Dave can get it a bit cheaper. Um, a few novel treatments for SMA out there, uh, which is actually really changing the patient phenotype, um, leading to a lot more discussions actually recently in about the role of orthopedic surgery. Um, but anyway, maybe I came across this interesting paper from Sick Kids by Xiao et al., the Archives of Diseases of Childhood titled Understanding Caregiver Experiences with Disease-Modifying Therapies for Spinal Muscular Atrophy, a Qualitative Study. Now, I don't know much about qualitative research, but it always seems sensible to ask parents about their experiences. Um, and the author authors interviewed parents of kids with SMA. Um, and you know, there are two main themes, basically. First, the inequality in accessing the disease-modifying therapies. Um, so, you know, if this thing is out there and there are various hurdles you need to go through, you're not sure whether you're going to get it. That is extremely stressful. Um, and then it talks about the patient and family experiences as well with regards to decision making. So the hope which is there. So for some of the SMAs, it's like, well, will, will they even live or not? And for the others, it's like, well, are they going to walk or not and live potentially a more normal life? But then there's a lot of fear as well, because we don't have much long term data on these medications. We don't know whether they're going to be future problems um, you know, as a result of them. So, you know, I just thought it was really interesting to read about the patients and the parents' perspectives. And I think it could help me be a bit more empathetic. Um, I think the other thing we should bear in mind is that treatments like Zolgesma, Gensma, I can't pronounce it very well, the sooner you get it in, the more efficacious it can be. But this relies on easy access to meds and potentially even screening for SMA, which they do in some countries. Um, and I know our prof in, um, in Oxford, uh, Laurence Survey, he's very keen to get screening for SMA in Oxford because, you know, 1.79 million is a lot. But if you can get it in early and it works really well, you're probably going to save a lot more than that in the long run. Um, there was a similar problem with one of the enzyme replacement therapies for one of the types of MPSs because the families were on a trial for two years. And on all the parameters, I'm exaggerating slightly, but on all the parameters at the end of the trial, the enzyme didn't really help. But the parents thought it was great. They, they were sure the child was better. So, of course, when they're told the end of the trial is here and you're not having the drug anymore because it's way too expensive for the NHS, that, that created a real problem. And they felt that was very unfair to have had the drug for two years and to be told that it wasn't helping when they thought it was. So, you know, either it's their optimism, you know, they want the treatment to work, don't they? Or we've picked the wrong outcome measures to look at. You know, we're not measuring things that are important to the child. So I, I oh yeah, yeah, I think it's really, that's gonna be a whole new avenue, isn't it? Or, or cost effectiveness and, and it may well, be cost effective over the lifetime of a child but we won't know that for a while no and sorry this is is it one oh yeah so yeah. one plus million per year alpesh no 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 it's a single dose uh it's a single really? infusion yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, so some some of them some of them nucinersin etc you're having periodically but the dissolved gems no yeah it's one off yeah i think you know um I'm just glad I'm not a health economist and I don't have to make decisions <laughs> like nice do you think this stuff is really hard isn't it you uh, it's the, the individual's needs versus society and making those decisions be really tough. Um, Pranay's added here that so Oxford are running a trial over five hospitals uh, where they're looking at adding the test uh, for heel prick screening. And that's for yeah. SNA, Pranay, is it? Yeah, yeah. And similarly, they're trying to do, thinking of doing it for some of the MPS ones as well, doing that at birth, but it's not as 
the, tr the tests aren't as specific, I understand, as the SMA test. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but that's my understanding. Okay, um, so moving on to a paper now, it's general appeal in paediatrics. Uh, Clayden et al. out of Queensland, Australia. So midline compared with peripheral intravenous catheters for therapy uh, of four days or longer in paediatric patients. A randomized controlled trial. trial this, I thought this, this was a great study. Robust methodology and quite appropriately a two-armed study. Uh, they, found <laughs> that, they found that midlines were associated with fewer insertion attempts, increased dwell time, Fewer patients requiring additional vascular access, greater patient and parent satisfaction, and fewer costs. Amazing! We should use them. Um, I guess sometimes we only know retrospectively that we need the I we needed the IVs for four days or longer. But and, and for us, it's it's usually the infections. Um, but we've all heard the carnage on the wards. Our juniors when they're trying to recannulate uh, this kid whose cannula has gone for IVs. It's it's horrible. Um, you know, if we go to theatre for a washout. I'll routinely ask the anesthetist to put a midline in now, um, and that keeps kind of most people happy. They they will they will yeah. It's it's it seems to be standard practice now yeah. So as our hospital, um, you have to rebook them for another general anaesthetic on another list to get the the line in. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, oh, yeah. I th no, I no. I think it's. I think you know. It just depends on the anaesthetist. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think that the other consideration in this paper was vein preservation in the sort of chronic, uh, the patients with chronic diseases because their veins are just getting used up at a rate of knots. So, um, you know, actually, after I read this, I forwarded it on to our PEDS ID lead and I said, look, we need a protocol here. Everyone should be getting midlines. What did you guys think? I agree. I think it is just the challenge of when you're getting that. So at our hospital, uh, it was a big problem. Uh, for a while it wasn't a problem at the beginning because peds doctors could do it as one of their competencies that's been scrapped uh and our ir team are very good and they will do it uh under the same ga i suppose the only thing i would say is that you know we're, we're now using shorter courses of ivs aren't we so if it is septic arthritis or very simple osteomyelitis then we don't really need the ivs for more than a couple of days so i think one simple cannula is enough but i think where you know it's complicated and you're going to need it for a few days then i think something proper is a good idea but I just wonder how many units, whether it's a midline or a proper, you know, because uh, I, was, I wasn't clear about this paper was, were they comparing pick lines with midline or some of it sounded just like normal IV cannulae? Because they're talking about yeah, short. Yeah, no, I think it was just normal, normal IV cannulae. Yeah, yeah so it's when you started looking at things like the time, the delay in insertion, and it said one for midlines versus five or six for the cannulae. And I wasn't sure whether that was, it sounded like it was days, but I was thinking, why is it taking longer to get cannulae put in? And they were being done under GA and things. So that's where I started to get really confused. But yeah. yeah. Um, fair, fair enough. yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that with, with biofire as well, you can get like the blood culture or the aspirates and everything. You get the results really quickly. So if we have, say, group A strep or something like that, we know straight away they're going to be in IVs for longer. So we could just get a midline in. Uh, so I think that's really useful. Uh, but valid point. Okay, if we've got time for one more, do you want to move on to yours? No, going. It's it's well. I think if I remember correctly, um, Deborah, are you left-handed? Yes. There we go. So this is a key paper. So it's an emotive topic. Um, it's been Excellent. the source of dis source of discrimination. You know, something I've had my whole life. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, being left-handed. Um, I am indeed a sinister surgeon. Um, so 
Uh, Brooks et al. from the Cleveland Clinic have looked into the experiences of lefties in their paper in the November edition of uh, Journal of Surgical Education, so titled The Right Way to Teach Lefties, exploring the experience of left-handed surgeon uh, trainees and surgeons. So out of interest, um, estimates, what proportion of the general population do you think are left-handed? 10%. Okay, good. You read the paper, okay. No, 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 I've just <laughs> no, I've known for a while. <laughs> okay, and then what proportion of surgeons do you think are left-handed? Higher, but I can't so, remember. I was surprised it's only 16% because oh, I keep yeah. coming across many more left-handed surgeons than you would think. Mm. Yeah, so I, I mean, they, they, it's all, it's, you give a range always. So they had naught to 26% or something like that. So, yeah. uh, but I, yeah, I, I come across uh, lots uh, essentially using a semi-structured semi interviews, left-handed trainees and both left and right-handed trainers were asked about learning and teaching experiences in the OR. Degree of handedness was also assessed using a laterality questionnaire. Uh, the bottom line is that left-handed surgeons face challenges in an environment designed for right-handed individuals. Left-handed people need to be very adaptable and use their right hand more often than right-handed people need to use their left hand. Um, and this increased propensity to ambidexterity may be advantageous, advantageous. And as some recommendations were made about training and mentoring methods with left-handed uh, attending supporting left-handed trainees. Um, ultimately, it's all a bit impractical. And I guess, you know, if you can't beat them, you've just got to join them. Uh, yeah, we've all heard the story when we were training. We all heard the story about Professor Joe Bloggs, a preeminent plastic surgeon who has a special set of left-handed instruments. But that's, if you're training with right-handed instruments, completely pointless then you won't be able to operate when you become a consultant um so i mean i, I thought nowhere in my training was my left-handedness addressed at all and i just had to get on with it even the scrub nurse still gives me the needle <laughs> mounted for right-handed so i think you know i like this paper because it was raised a, a topic important and close to my heart but i don't think it's going to solve anything you don't you don't think the boa needs to add it to its edi agenda <laughs> I think it's got enough to deal with it as it is. <laughs> it did, you know, as a non, as, as a right-hand dominant person, it did make me think, because I've, you know, some of my trainees have been left-handed. Um, and we comment on that in a kind of, oh yeah, are you standing like that? Because you're left-handed, yep, that's fine. You know, not in a, no, you mustn't do it like that. But then it was just making me think, should we be doing more to help? Um, but some of the ideas they came up with, things like being mentored by a left-handed person, I think I'm not sure these things are practical. And actually what it seemed to say was actually those people who are left-handed seem to get on with it and do well regardless. That that was the take home. Mm. Um, and yeah, I should stop saying which, which, which when they're operating in my operating theatres. That was the, the thing, just be kind and positive. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, it would work both ways because then if you had a left-handed attending and a right-handed trainee and then, yeah. you know, all hell's going to break loose. So uh, you just <laughs> have to deal with it. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm going to whiz through because, you know, people say they do like the bite sizes. We try and stay away from the big orthopedic journals so that you don't because you, you'll be reading those anyway. Um, so first, my paper is from JAMA Pediatrics, published in November. Um, and it was a really interesting paper. It's called Changes Induced by Early Hand Arm Bimanual Intensive Therapy, Including Lower Extremities, which has the acronym HABIT-LE, in young children with unilateral cerebral palsy, a randomized clinical trial. And this is Aaron Ader et al. from Brussels. Um, and it was a really cool randomized controlled trial, including patients from Belgium, France, and Italy. 
And I think it's one of those things that I think we're all aware of when you're looking after children with cerebral palsy, particularly those with hemiplegic type CP, a lot of them can really end up neglecting the affected arm. And it's something that we're always pointing out. You talk about constrained, well, CIMT, isn't it? Constrained induced manual therapy. What this group did was a matched pair randomization of 50 children and gave one group 50 hours of this habit LE over two week periods. That's five hours of intense uh, training, essentially, starting. And the age group was between one and four years old. And they compared it to a similar group that got nothing spontaneous and unstructured motor activities over the same time frame. And they did assessments at baseline two weeks and three months. Uh, they used the, uh, um, the, I was going to say the AHA, it's the assisting hand assessment, assessment score, GMFM 66 and Melbourne assessment two, which is a bit more functional. And they found significant differences uh at that three month mark so it seemed to be that that intense training didn't just make a change for two weeks but it persisted at three months the only thing i wasn't sure about was the mean aha difference was 5.19 uh, and it was higher just as you were talking about with things like sma in children under the age of two what i couldn't find was an mcid for the aha but what they did say was that the smallest detectable difference in aha is five so 5.19 doesn't sound like a huge difference. It's just above the smallest detectable difference. Um, so I'm not sure we're going to be able in the UK healthcare system to get all of our patients getting this intense therapy at the beginning. But I was wondering whether there's some scope for providing parents with some education about things that they could do in their own time. Because a lot of these parents are very motivated, aren't they? They want to make a difference to their kids' outcome. So that's where I thought this actually has some benefit in the future and something that could evolve. Um, any comments on that, guys? Do you guys get good therapy input for your children at such a young age? Because normally at age one, we're saying, well, the ther therapist can't do that much with you at this stage. But actually what this is saying is jump in early. I think it reminds me of the sort of the trend when it was to send them to the Peto Institute in, in Hungary, where that their philosophy, I don't mean to be flippant again, didn't really matter how you did it, but you were to do stuff, you know, and you were to use all your limbs. And if you were just using your grasp reflex to hold on to the ladder back chair, it didn't really matter that you were doing stuff. And I quite like this, you know, that you're asking families to help to encourage the children to use what they've got more and things like that. Um, so I, I think it probably is good. The brain's very plastic, I understand, at that stage, isn't it? Yeah. I think the the practicalities of this again. You've got young kids. Like, how did they do five hours? I mean, I just I'd like to be a fly on the wall. I mean, how much of that time was useful, like therapy versus just carnage? I've got to say that they did break into two two sessions. One was only three hours in the morning, and then a lighter two hour in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I've just spent a couple of hours with my sixteen year old doing his history homework. Man, um, that's that's an older age group, isn't it? Um, then my next paper is uh, analysis of growth after transficeal anterior ligament, uh, sorry, cruciate ligament reconstruction in children. Uh, and this is from Bolzinger et al. Uh, in JPO, October 23. And it's two centers, Toulouse. So that's Frank Ackerbled. But more importantly, a man that we all know and trust, Nick Nicolau from Sheffield. I don't reconstruct ACLs. Um, Pranay, I know you're involved. Deborah Alpesh, do you guys do this at all? No. I think it's interesting, though, because I think, you know, we all see children with ruptured ACLs and it's a big area of growth, isn't it? 
And what I liked about this paper was they talked about lots of meta-analyses and system, systematic reviews that are out there, but this was a prospective study. And they explained that transficeal techniques allowed the more anatomic tunnel placement, and so you're supposed to get better knee kinematics. Um, and essentially, they looked at their results in six to 16-year-old children with open physis. They did baseline long leg x-rays at six months post-op, so not before surgery, but six months, and then compared them to a 24-month follow-up period. Their mean age was 13 years old. Um, in their group, at the two-year follow-up, 72% had reached skeletal maturity. So I actually think that's quite a good representative group because sometimes they're like, oh, we did them in 15-year-olds. They're all skeletally mature by the end. And the numbers, 13% developed a long leg, uh, sorry, leg length discrepancy of over 10 millimetres between the six-month and 24-month x-ray, which wasn't related to age. And I thought that was really interesting. So you'd think it'd be the younger kids that are going to get these bigger discrepancies. And 13 developed a mechanical axis deviation of at least 10 millimeters. And again, they identified no risk factors. And if you looked at individual femoral and tibial malalignment and used a um, malalignment measure of over three degrees of shift in the mechanical axis, one third of cases of femurs and 53% at tibial level were affected. And so what they've concluded is that they don't know whether this is clinically significant, but that there is definitely growth disturbance, which I think is out of keeping with what, we, what, what we're hearing. We're hearing that nothing changes. Yeah. And I thought that's why this is really interesting. And it's a kind of, well, we've got to watch this space. Um, what they do say is that when you look at the other techniques, we know that they're affected as well. So it's not as simple as just crossing the physis that's causing the issue. And it could be things like the actual ligament acting as a tether. But I think with those kind of numbers, what was reassuring was it's not related to age. So actually, there's no necessary benefit in waiting till they're 15 years old. You might as well get on with it when they're 13. But the big things were performing long leg x-rays uh, and following up these patients. And I guess, Pranay, you're doing it with a knee surgeon, aren't you? So you're the person providing that input from a mechanical axis point of view, which is something they may not be looking at. Is that right? It's part of our standard workup protocol for any of these uh, pediatric and adolescent knee patients, even if it's a discoid or anything else, not just for ACLs. We're finding a lot of discoid patients end up having a degree of algus. Um, so whilst you deal with discoid or do whatever needs doing to it, you need to put an eight plate in and then offload it, offload the compartment. So it's becoming part of standard protocol and what's discussed at the kids' knee meetings, which obviously Nick has organised uh, in Sheffield again next year. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's where those BISCOS BAS guidelines have been useful as well. And it does emphasize that MDT approach, doesn't it? Um, and then moving on, uh, I thought this was a really interesting paper. So this is called Collagenase Treatment Decreases Muscle Stiffness in Cerebral Palsy, a preclinical ex vivo biomechanical analysis of hip adductor muscle fiber bundles. So this is Howard et al. It had some big names on there as well. So Kerr Graham, as you'd expect in a CP paper. And this was in last month's Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? And I guess, Deborah, again, you've seen this in your career, right? So Botox has come in, uh, used loads. Are you now moving away from it? Because I know a lot of people say they are, but I think it's definitely still got an indication. But what are your thoughts? Um, uh, uh, I'm probably doing less of it, but yeah. only because I think I overused it in the hopes that it might work or that needed to do something. And I have for a long time thought that if I was asked to make a significant cost saving now, that yeah. that would 
be one of the services I would look at really harshly um, in terms of saving money. So I'm not being, I, I don't think Botox dissolves muscles. There was a phase where, you know, it, it, the idea was that it repeated injections sort of dissolved the muscle effectively. So I haven't been a fan of that idea. So no, I I, I use it less, Anish, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Alpesh, are you similar there? Yeah, we, we use it a lot less, actually. Yeah. Um, I think it was prompted in part by COVID because it, you know, it was sort of maybe we had, it was luxury for us having access to theatres easily, being able to whack a bit of Botox in. And then when it wasn't a luxury anymore, we just thought that was the first group we had to cut out. And then we sort of never got back to it because I don't think we saw huge differences. Mm. I, I think it is. So personally, my I, I think it's about making sure you, you know, it's about patient selection of all of these things, isn't it? Yeah. But this is where this was interesting is um, what they were saying is that Botox hasn't been proven to prevent contractures in children with CP. And that those contractures and the stiffness of the muscle fibers seems to be associated with increased collagen in the extracellular matrix rather than the fibers themselves. See, this is why basic science is so important. We should have paid attention. Um, and so they looked at an enzyme called Clostridium histolyticum, which I'm going to call CCH because they did. And that essentially degrades type one and three collagens. And what was really interesting is they chose this because it doesn't affect some of the other collagens like type four because otherwise you'd get really floppy cells. And this is the kind of thing you don't even think about really, but it would have absolutely dissolved the muscle away. So they had biopsies from patients taken from a ductal longus from patients who have GMFCS4 and five level CP. They bathed those biopsies in varying concentrations of this enzyme CCH, and then did lab experiments working out the stress strain curves. And so this is really cool based on the fact that the biopsy was only about two centimeters in length and they're dividing it up they had 11 patients with a mean age of six and essentially what they did show is that by treating it with cch they reduced the elastic modulus from 205 to 100 and they decreased the collagen uh, content by 27 percent so you can see because and again their theory i think was that it's been used for jupitrons and various other conditions where there's a lot of fibrosis maybe collagenases have a role in cp and so i do think that this paper provides that proof of concept and you wonder whether we are going to be seeing this taking off in years to come i suppose the only thing is i'm not sure how you'd inject it into the muscle like where it's going to be you know at multiple points or what what role it's going to have but i thought it was really interesting um and it, you know i like these kind of things that seem a bit far out and maybe something we'll see in the future Any well, they've got a job lot they've, they've got a job lot of uh uh, of collagenase because they don't use it anymore hands do they so uh yeah exactly. we're going to find another place <laughs> yeah, exactly. you think the company is just peddling its wares at various places going oh there might be more here let's try these guys um, and, and prana you've used it in what a led lederhosen <laughs> case yeah with good success but it's off labeling kids in the uk yeah. so you have to get it approved and obviously go through that sort of duty of candor with families so yeah. i'm not yeah. sure if it's different in the u.s Man, I don't think I've seen lederhosen except in, in the FRCS. Um, right. I, I've never seen that, don't think. So I'm now going to have to go and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple of other quick papers. OK, so one that I'd heard about at meetings was this hip screen mobile app. And I have to say, when I heard about it, I thought, man, that's really cool. Because, again, you know, we all like technology. And here's an app. You point your phone at an X-ray. And in my head, so this app measures hip migration on an AP pelvis. So in my head, you pointed the app at the picture and it gave you a magic number. 
and I don't know if you guys have used it, but that's not how it works. So this paper was looking at its accuracy, reliability, and discriminatory ability. It's by Kulkarni et al. And again, it's in developments in child neurology a couple of months ago. And the headline figures, I think, were that looking at hip migration percentage over 30%, calling that a positive result, its sensitivity was 94% and specificity 66%, which I don't think is very good. And so unfortunately, I think that just getting people to learn how to measure migration index on an x-ray is probably better. And what was interesting is with this, they had to go through some sort of training anyway. And I was trying to think of a situation where you don't have your x-ray on a PAX viewer, but you had it WhatsApp to you and you think, oh yeah, what I'll do is save that to my photos and then use my hip screen app. So even, cause initially I thought, oh, this would be great for the community. But it won't be really. It's not even that it makes it any easier. I think what I'd love to see in years to come and me and Pranay were having this chat a week uh, earlier in the week was with AI. You can see that there'll be a point where you do an AP pelvis and automatically it reads it for you and says this is a migration percentage. I'm not sure that I see this app providing any benefit for anyone at this stage. I don't know if you guys have used it or whether you feel differently. No, lots of head shaking. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, so moving on. So, so yeah, sorry, I, I was hoping that'd be a really good one for our community physios and say, yep, this is what you should use. But no, I won't be. Um, and in my last paper, because everyone is playing with chat GPT. So this is called AI equals appropriate insight. Chat GPT appropriately answers parents' questions for common pediatric orthopedic conditions. And this is by Zuzman Natal from New York, and it's published in November's issue of Jay Posner. And essentially what they did was ask 30 questions to chat GPT. They took the topics and the questions from the OrthoKids website. And I was a little bit surprised when I Googled OrthoKids and it mentioned Jimmy Barnes and Anna Clark from Bristol. And I thought, wow, those guys have hit the big time. But actually that's, there's his .co.uk. But if you want to look up orthokids.com or org, that's Posner. And that's what this paper uses. And basically they got chat GPT to answer questions uh, the answers were reviewed by two pediatric orthopods who basically came up with an agree, a neutral, which is well, it has not said anything worrying, or a disagree. They had 93% agreement with the chatbot. Only two questions were neutral and there were no actual disagreements. And again, when you look at the neutral, it was not things that were far out, actually. All the answers did have a safety net of contact. And what was interesting for some of them, it would specify see a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And for others, it would say see a healthcare professional. It didn't name names in terms of which surgeon you should see. And the only thing that it said that was proprietary was using a Dennis Brown splint. And I thought this was really interesting because actually when you do compare the answers that were given by the chat box, they give an example. Uh, for example, it was the incidence of Sufi uh, bilaterally versus what you've got on the ortho kids website which is really useful and a great resource for parents actually the chatbot seemed to provide more focused information it, it, to me it seemed easier to use and understand and i think this is definitely the future isn't it people are just going to go to chat gpt and i was thinking actually if our gps use chat gpt they might get some good answers the only thing i said i did play on it once and said give me causes of knee pain in a 13 year old and it didn't mention slip femoral epiphysis so for me that was a big black mark um but I think you can see AI is just getting better and better in a short space of time. What do you guys think about AI? Do you think it is going to be the future? I think it's got to be. But again, it 
it's how we, you use it. And I've tried it a few times and my fellow is always WhatsApping me sort of things that he's looked up on my behalf, you know, the basis of a lecture. So I find things like the headings are helpful, but there's no substance behind the headings. You know, it's just a bland statement. But for something like that, Anish, you perhaps just need some bland, basic points. You know, you don't want a philosophical discussion about the pros and cons of flat feeding kids, do you? You just want to be told. And as you say, not have to go through a thousand and one different things to find the bit. You ask a specific question and you get your specific answer. So I think maybe it would be very useful. Yeah, I think that it's it's really interesting. And actually, I'm just going to make a shameless plug here. So CCC in 2026 in Oxford, one of the themes is going to be technology uh, because mm. it's so important. And I think people want to know about it. And when you're reviewing all these journals as well, there's so many, so many papers uh, out there about machine learning. And, you know, it's it's actually quite difficult as a reviewer because none of it makes much sense. Uh, and um, yeah, so I think it's really important. We, we know it, we know about it so we can use it properly um and not just be uh you know seduced by it mm. yeah um i think yeah there was one machine learning one for perthes that i was really excited by uh, it's in jpo in the last couple of months uh and it was predicting the outcome from femoral varus osteotomy for perthes and genuinely i thought man this is really cool and it talks about some of the things that we know are important but one of the important eight variables was neck shaft angle at maturity and that's where it seemed to fall down a bit because you can't really use it as a predictive tool if you have to then work out <laughs> what it's going to be at maturity. So I think it's little bits like that where they've plugged data in and they've got all the data, but they haven't thought about the fact that this isn't going to be very useful in a predictive fashion. But you can just see it's going faster and faster. Um, so, yeah, I think. And again, it was reassuring that actually people could use chat GPT and not be given a load of uh, nonsense. But right. So that was my bite sizes. Um, and I think we're going to wrap up now. So just to say a big thank you, Deborah. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great. Uh, you provided lots of insight um, and it's been really useful. And I think our audience will love that too. Uh, any last comments, Alpesh? Well, just echo the, your, your thanks, really. It was amazing. Thank you. And my yeah. thanks to you lot for asking me. It's been fun. <laughs> and we didn't talk about the, criti- uh, the cricket. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Right, guys, you've been listening to our BizCost podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, And then, yeah, feel free to put out anything. If you want to email us, please do if there's been any accuracies or any further information required. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Bye.